0: And I will pick up the reading from verse 13 of chapter 3. <coughs> so, Mark 3 from verse 13. And Jesus went up the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came. And standing outside, they sent him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my brother and my mother? Sorry, my mother and my brothers. And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here. And my mother and my brothers for whoever does the will of god he is my brother and sister and mother
1: thank you roger well let's keep our bibles open and let me pray as we come to god's word our father we pray that you would speak to us clearly and powerfully and helpfully and encouragingly we pray that you would teach us things or clear up things that we perhaps have misunderstood. And we pray that the big message of this section, that when Jesus is rejected, his kingdom will advance, will encourage us in all sorts of different ways. For we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, at this point in Mark's Gospel, What would be ringing in our ears if we had time to read the sections before is the rejection of Jesus by the Jewish religious leaders. Tragically, they would not embrace Jesus as their Messiah king, as their Savior. Their religion had become their religion. And that phrase, I think, is helpful. Their religion their religion and not Jesus' religion, a religion that had no room for the Messiah. Davi used a good phrase last week, uh, preaching in the earlier section, religion without God or godless religion. They would not accept Jesus on his terms. They would not accept Jesus' lordship, nor his leadership, nor his authority, nor his concern for sinners, nor the free range of his gospel, nor his message of forgiveness. When their long-awaited Messiah comes, these leaders will not embrace him. They will not have him. So, what will they do? And that shocking verse, chapter 3, verse 6, many of you were not here last week, so look back to that, chapter 3, verse 6, the Pharisees. These are the leaders of the Jewish people that Jesus had come to as their Messiah. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians, another group of leaders, against Jesus how to destroy him. But that's a shocking, shocking statement. Early on in Jesus' ministry, destroy the Messiah now, Jesus is rejected, but his kingdom advances. That is Mark's point in chapter 3, verses 13 to 35. Jesus is rejected, but his kingdom advances. Now, let me explain something about the way Mark writes. You've just got to get your head around this. Mark intends us to. He uses a number of literary techniques in the way that he writes, one of which goes by the fancy name of interleaving. Let me give you a less fancy name, a sandwich. Okay? A sandwich has two bits of bread. And please don't, at the end of the service, like someone after the first service said, sandwiches don't just have two bits of bread. Don't hold a spare if you do that. Sandwiches have two bits of bread. One bit, another bit, and a filling in the middle. And a Marken sandwich, if we can use that phrase, has two bits of teaching related to one another wrapped around another bit of teaching in the middle. Here in chapter 3, verses 13 to 35, this is the technique Mark uses. We'll see it again next week when we're in chapter 5. Now, just look at the passage in your Bibles. This is an occasion when a physical Bible trumps a phone by a long way you can see it all spread out. So look at the chapter in your Bibles, chapter 3, verses 13 to 35. The two bookends that relate to each other, first verses 13 to 19, they are about how Jesus' kingdom will advance, go forward through the church, the church founded by the apostles proclaiming Jesus' message. And then at the other end, The other bookend, verses 31 to 35, teach us what constitutes the church and who is part of the church of Christ. So, the two bookends, the two brackets, are about how the kingdom goes forward through the church, what constitutes the church, and who is part of the church. Now, if they are the bits on either side, if they are, if you like, the bits of bread that make up the sandwich, then what's the filling in the middle? The filling in the middle, verses 20 to 30, describe how Jesus is rejected. Now that's a a typical device that Mark uses. Rejection in the middle, advance on either side. The point is, as we read it and teach it, in spite of rejection, Jesus' kingdom will always advance. That's the point uh, for us. Now, let's uh, begin by looking at the bit in the middle, the filling, Jesus' rejection, verses 20 to 30. And uh, there are two groups of people who reject Jesus. Firstly, his own immediate family, verses 20 to 21, and second, verses 22 to 30, this group of scribes. that's more religious leaders, more Jewish religious leaders who came down from Jerusalem. Firstly, his family, verses 20 to 21. And here we get onto to really real, sensitive ground. So let's read the verses. Jesus went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize Jesus, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. Jesus' family have decided that enough is enough. That's his nuclear family, his flesh and blood, his mum, his dad, his. His, uh, his, his human parents, his brothers, his, his relatives, if you like. They have decided that enough is enough, that he is out of his mind. Maybe early on they thought, Jesus is gifted, he's a great teacher, he's got this gift, he's a healer. Maybe they had some sense that, that they'd come to understand that he is God, but it's gone far too far. The Greek here is strong. To take charge of him literally is to arrest him, get a grip of him, get a hold of yourself with Jesus, calm down. Now, why is that sensitive? We'll come back to this later. Over the years, I've encountered, not infrequently, Christians, people who become Christians and their families start saying stuff like, get a grip of yourself, calm down, when they realize that it's not just a phase. That's not uncommon, and it's really tough. And we'll come back to that. Secondly, uh, this delegation from Jerusalem, verses 22 to 30, the scribes, like the Pharisees and Herodians we met earlier in chapter 3, verse 6, are part of the Jewish religious leadership. And here, verse 22, It's extraordinary and shocking what they do. They accuse Jesus of being possessed by Satan, chapter 3, verse 22. They look at what he's done. They look at the extraordinary healing miracles, and they say he is doing that in the power of Satan and not in the power of God, the Holy Spirit. Now, the name Beelzebub, verse 22, is just another name for Satan or the devil and it is shocking this to the face of their messiah they say he is the devil incarnate they say that the holy spirit of christ the part of the godhead that saves that forgives that sanctifies that changes us is not god in him it is the devil Now, we've seen, and the apostles do this too, how Jesus responds to hostility by directing questions at his opponents. It is striking here that Jesus doesn't shout at them. He doesn't rile at them. He doesn't perform some miracle in their face to silence them. He just answers them with, firstly, An unanswerable question, verse 23, how can Satan cast out Satan? So, how can Satan cast out himself? Followed by three unanswerable questions, how can Satan cast out Satan? He's referring to the miracles of exorcism that Jesus had performed. Three unanswerable applications. 24. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. All three statements say much the same thing. If Satan opposes himself, there is civil demonic war going on. If the realm of hell is split down the middle, hell's end will come. There's no way that if Jesus was possessed by Satan, he would do that. For Satan to drive out Satan violates the very conditions of his existence. And then Jesus concludes his argument with an unassailable fact, verse 27. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man... Then indeed he may plunder his house. What Jesus is alluding to there that yes, he is dealing with Satan in his ministry, but not in league with him. He has come to destroy him. He has come into the realm of Satan, not to work with him, but to bind him and to plunder his house. And what is Satan's house? Satan is referred to in the Bible as the prince of this world. His house is this world, and Jesus came into the world to plunder people out of Satan's grip. He wouldn't do that if he was aligned to Satan, of course. Now, Jesus' judgment on these Jewish religious—and don't lose the shock of the fact that these are the leaders of the Jewish people— who are responding to Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah, and saying these things. Jesus gathered them around, and he says, verses 28 and 29, "'Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness.'" but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is the only unforgivable sin. What is it? It is to attribute the undeniable power of Jesus' ministry to heal the sick. It is to attribute the undeniable power of Jesus' ministry in Mark chapter 5, to take a little girl's hand and raise her up from death to life. It is to say that Jesus, as he stands on that boat in a storm and says, Be still, that is the activity of the devil. And long down into the beginnings of the early church, it is to say that the Holy Spirit of God that convicts people of sin and washes them clean is... An agency of the devil. It is to call light dark. It is to accuse the one who is full of the spirit of possessing an evil spirit. It is to call the Holy One of God the evil one. Now, for most of us, we can see that as a as a grievous and a terrible sin, particularly when it is one that is perpetuated or taught by those in leadership amongst the visible people of God. And it does not cross our minds or our hearts that we might have committed that sin. But there are some of us in this room, and there are some Christians, who really do believe they have. Now, I'm going to come back at that later on in the talk. Now, rejection. It's very clear by his family, by these Jewish religious leaders. On the other side of the central section about rejection, Mark describes how Jesus' kingdom and his message will advance through the church. Firstly, verses 13 through 19. Verse 13 indicates the importance of the moment. Jesus went up on a mountain and called to him, those whom he desired. Significant spiritual events in the kingdom of God happen up mountains. That's where uh, God revealed his glory to Moses and made a covenant, giving him the law and the commandments, Exodus 19 to 20. Later in uh, Mark's gospel, Jesus will take Peter, James, and John up a mountain to reveal his glory. So, something big is going on here, and the church, verse 14, is to be founded on the ministry of the apostles who will proclaim Jesus' message to the world. See what he's saying here? He's rejected. He's rejected by the leaders of the Jewish people. He's rejected by those he has come to be their Messiah. And so his message will go forward through the universal church founded on the ministry of the apostles who will do what? they will preach. He appointed them so that they might be with him through his own ministry and that he might send them out to preach the gospel and have authority to cast out uh, demons. Jesus gives them ability to drive out demons and perform other miracles to establish their authority. They have, like Jesus, a foundational authoritative ministry. And then verses 16 to 19, he lists the twelve apostles. Now, at the other end of the section, verses 31 to 35, Jesus explains who can be part of Jesus' church. Let's read these verses again. Verse 31, "'His mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called to him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, "'Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you.' It's very normal, eyewitness stuff. Your mum, your dad, and your brothers are outside, and they're looking for you, Jesus. And he answered them, extraordinary statement, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him, sat at his feet, sat at the feet of the teacher, listening to the Lord Jesus, he said, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister, and mother. Now, while the teachers of the law, these scribes, were guilty of an unforgivable sin, it was not true of Jesus' family. Uh, There is no evidence by the end of the Gospels or the beginning of Acts that the teachers of the law repented, but there is every evidence that Jesus' family did. The mum of Jesus, Mary, his brothers, were to become his disciples after the resurrection. And yet, a reminder will remain, and it's important that we mark this, Family relationships give no natural right to office in the church of Christ. The new family of God is not according to flesh and blood, nor race or culture or background. It is no longer about being born a Jew or born to the right parents. So, what are the marks of this new order, the church of Christ? In verse 14 we saw that the first mark of this new order is the proclamation of the word of God. The second mark of this new order is the apostolic authority. And we proclaim the apostles teaching in the bibles. And the other mark of the new family of God the other end of the passage the right hand book end is people sitting around the feet of Jesus, the teacher, listening to his words. And therein is a wonderful picture of what is a real, true, living church that bears the family resemblance of Jesus' church, where there is the preaching of God's Word and where people sit and listen and obey God's Word. Proclamation of the gospel, obedience to the gospel. And it might be happening right now as the gospel is proclaimed, repent and believe as we come to the Lord's table, someone is converted. That's what this is saying. Or all of us sit around God's word. We listen, as it were, at Jesus' feet, and we learn and we grow as Christians. It's all very practical, We're able to assess whether the church we lead or attend is part of the true church or not. And that comes up again and again when you're listening to sermons or it should when they're biblical sermons. You've got to keep coming back to, is it real, is it real, is it real, is it real? What are the signs? The signs cannot be counterfeited. Is the gospel faithfully proclaimed from the lectern. Do the people of God revel in the proclamation of the gospel and submit to its rule and authorities? Such are the marks of the living church. We've always got to ask ourselves the question are we doing that faithfully? Am I listening? Am I obeying? Jesus is rejected, but his kingdom advances. Now, I hope I've persuaded you that that is the point that Mark is making in chapter 3, verses 13 to 35. Jesus is rejected, but his kingdom advances. Let me draw out some implications and applications of that. The first big implication is how big Jesus is. He is the supreme authority. If, in the end, someone rejects Jesus, he will reject them. In the end. The supreme authority and power is with Jesus. Again and again throughout history. The church is under pressure, the true and living church of Christ, but the flame never dies. The church grows. Let me draw out three applications. Firstly, to us as individuals. I said earlier, and I want to come back to this, that sometimes when people become Christians, they experience rejection by their own families. And I could give you a dozen examples of that, some of which might well be in this room. I have a friend who is a a minister who was studying law, I think, at Oxford University, and he was gifted, he was able, and he was, I think, over New Year at one of his mate's houses. And he quietly said, to his mates, parents, I'm not going to actually do law in the end, I'm going to be a minister. And one of them laughed at him, and the other one said, what a waste. Or a family, someone goes off to uni, say, or whatever, and they become a Christian. And the family are okay for a time because it's, they think, just a passing phase but it doesn't pass. In fact, it grows stronger. And the holiday times are pretty tense. Now, in God's goodness and grace, very often it leads to people coming to faith in the end. But not always. I think this is more particularly seen where there are cultural reasons why conversion to Christ means that somebody is is cut off. Yesterday, in the funeral we had yesterday, one of the consequences of one of the people who died becoming a Christian was cutting off from certain family members. Now, that's very real and hard, and it might be true for someone here Your Christmas might have been tough. What does Jesus say to you? What Jesus says is that you have brothers and sisters in a living church, you have people who love you and who are your brothers and sisters that's why God gave us the church, amongst many other reasons, to be a household, to be a family. Many of us have the great joy and privilege of families where there is love, where there are other Christians. And just to say families where there aren't Christians can be wonderfully loving families, too. But not everyone in this room does, but everyone in this room is invited to be part of a living church family, and there is no better place to belong. I guess the second application individually to this is that when we engage in evangelism, when we speak to people about the Lord Jesus, people we know in our course, or people we know at work, or people we know in our neighbors, or even in our families, often they say no, and there is rejection. And what does Jesus say to us? Look, I understand rejection is just par for the course when it comes to me and my gospel and my, my message. It, look, look, there's nothing unusual. Look, look, Look all over the gospels, but also look over the wall and see how the gospel goes forward. In chapter 6, he will tell us Look, I know that you're sharing your faith with that person, but if they say no, just leave it and move on. Speak to somebody else. Let me give you an application on a national scale right across the UK, and I'm not talking about denominations or institutions, it's much more complex than that, but just look at the church, the landscape in Europe or in in, in Britain, in the UK, the church, the church, much of the church is saying no to Jesus on His terms. It will not have His authority. It will not have His gospel. It will not sit at the feet of Jesus in his words in the Bible and do what he says. And there comes a point, and maybe we are at or past that point in Europe, where Jesus says, Enough is enough. And his judgment comes against the visible church. But what else happens? The church, new churches spring up everywhere. Church plants, normal. The church grows. A whole generation of young people come to faith. The baton is passed on. People who will sit at the feet of Jesus to dominate the world. This we'll see, I pray and believe, and history is on our side, and Jesus' promise is on the side, His side of history. This will lead to the next major expansion or movement of the gospel. But it's awfully hard when you're in the middle of it now that's the big take home from today jesus is rejected but his kingdom will go forward jesus is rejected but his kingdom will go forward i encourage you to apply that prayerfully personally more widely and then globally in your minds now i want to come back in the last few minutes to the matter of the unforgivable sin blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Over the years in ministry, I have had contact with a number of people who are afraid they have committed this unforgivable sin. And without breaching any confidences, when I um, have the privilege of pastoring or caring for these people, we're not talking one discussion, one conversation, one meeting. We're talking months and months and months and months as people battle through this issue. Let me read with us the verses again, 28 to 30. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he is an unclean spirit. Let me say a number of things. Number one, sin is a very serious thing. We must never underestimate the seriousness of sin or the anger of God against sin. In a few minutes, we'll come to the Lord's table and we will be reminded what it took to deal with sin. God's Messiah King, the eternal Son of God nailed to a cross to deal with human sin. Second, I want you to register in your minds verse 28 before getting to verse 29. Read with me verse 28 again. Truly I say to you, or listen carefully to what I am going to say, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and who whatever blasphemies they utter. Jesus came not to leave us in confusion. He did not come that we might be fearful. He did not come to leave us in the fear of unforgiven sin. One of the wonderful things about the fact that our forgiveness and our salvation is entirely due to God's grace, we bring nothing to this table. All we do is cling to the cross of Christ. Salvation by grace alone through Christ's death alone. One of the implications of the gospel of grace is we can have full assurance of, of forgiveness. Jesus really did mean us to read Romans 8 and believe it. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Jesus rejoiced when Wesley wrote his hymn, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? No condemnation, now I dread Jesus, and all in him is mine. Or that other great hymn, Matchless Grace, has made the treasure of Christ mine. You have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What is the unforgivable sin? It is to attribute the undeniable power of Jesus' ministry to the influence and control of demonic forces. It is to see the light and call it darkness. It is to accuse the one who is full of the Spirit of possessing an evil spirit. John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water, but Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And it is to say that no, he does not. He brings evil. That's what it's saying. It's a shocking thing to believe about Jesus. And if you feel the shock of that, even in a tiny way, If you feel that your conscience is disturbed, that someone could even think that or say that, then you have not committed that sin. Look at these teachers from Jerusalem in verse 22. Are they troubled in their conscience? Are they contrite? Are they anxious? No. If you think you have committed this unforgivable sin or might have, and you are contrite or anxious, And you have not committed that sin. You know, when people speak to me about this, when they're struggling with this, they are anxious, they are contrite, they are anxious, and they are contrite. And the first thing I'm able to say to them, in your anxiety, in your fear, in your contrition, that is the Holy Spirit convicting you not that you have blasphemed Him, but you understand sin. If there is a voice whispering in your ear that you have committed that sin, then that is the devil's voice. It is one of his fieriest darts, sent to hurt people, to taunt them, to wound them. Let me say this fourthly. Why do people think they have committed this unforgivable sin, or who thinks they have? One of the benefits of growing old is that pastoral experience allows you to say things to help people. Over the years, I've seen two groups of people particularly vulnerable to this. The first group is people who have experienced a major trauma in their life, usually the death of a loved one in tragic circumstances, and their reaction has been at the time, and they have spoken to me, they have described this to blame God, to get angry at God, to go for a walk in the hills, to shout at God, to swear at God, to scream at God. And I'll never forget standing with someone in the snow in a graveyard in the city here next to his wife, who died tragically as a young woman, and with tears rolling down that man's face, he said he was broken by what he had said in his grief to God, convinced God could never and would never forgive him. And there in the graveyard in the snow, we began to pray together that he would come to the point where he knew that God had forgiven him. And over the months, over the years, he did. And he would love to stand up here. I can picture him. I'd love to tell you his name. Some of you might know him. And he would say, I am forgiven. The second group of people who suffer or who believe they have committed this sin, are people who suffer from certain forms of depressive or related illness, a feature of which, a medical feature of which, is intrusive thoughts in their minds, that they have said something or sought something to God that is unforgivable. Many people who suffer from depressive illness have thoughts that come into their minds, like they've pushed someone onto a train track, when to most of us, there's no way he done that. We would know. But that is a peculiar issue of certain types of depressive illness. And one of the devil's darts is to put into our minds intrusive thoughts that we have said something or thought something. That is very, very common for people who suffer from these illnesses and they become paralyzed with fear that they really did think that or that they really did say that or that they would wake up one night and find themselves out loud blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Now, let me encourage you. That's illness. That is not blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And if that is you, let the Lord Jesus take away your fear. Pray that these intrusive thoughts would go Seek medical and other care, and they will get better. But they may never entirely go. And even if they don't go, you have no cause to be afraid, for you have not committed the unforgivable sin. Let me encourage you to talk to someone if you are anxious about this. Remember, you're in a family where people love you. And come to Jesus and rest in him and let him give you assurance in your soul that you are forgiven.